This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains some distressing audio. In August 2017, at a racist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, a neo-Nazi drove his car into a group of counter-protesters, killing a 32-year-old woman. A day later, Donald Trump looked down at the speech that had been written for him. What he was meant to say was this. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry and violence. It has no place in America. That's what he was supposed to say. Instead, he said this. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry and violence on many sides. On many sides. On many sides, meaning both the racists and the anti-racists were equally to blame. There was a massive media backlash to that. So a day later, he was given a script to read and he stuck to it. Racism is evil and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. In the media, President Trump was praised for his new tone. His aides told him what a great job he'd done. Trump sat down to watch how Fox News reacted to his latest speech. I think it's a good thing that he did come out and restate it and specifically said what his his detractor said he, he needed to say. That's almost an admission of, okay, I was wrong. Trump was furious. Woodward reports that President Trump says that was the biggest effing mistake I've made. You never make those concessions. You never apologize. I didn't do anything wrong in the first place. Why look weak? I'm never going to do anything like that again. Journalist Bob Woodward reports that Trump declared to his staff that appearing to apologize was a mistake and promised not to do it again. And he never would. Today, how Trump exacerbated America's centuries-old racial divide for his own political gain and triggered this year's enormous international Black Lives Matter protests. And how his efforts to make America proud again ended up ripping it further apart. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is America If You're Listening, a podcast about how Donald Trump changed the United States and the world. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he didn't focus much on America's black population. When he did, it was to say that they should roll the dice on him. You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. 58% of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? This was an unusual pitch a particularly brazen attempt to drive down black voter turnout by describing their choice as a hopeless one. Ever since Donald Trump was elected, as a protest movement grew accusing him of racism, a debate has raged about whether he is a racist. His son Donald Trump Jr. says he's not. It's been terrible to watch because I've seen, I know him. Uh, I've seen him my whole life. I've seen the things he's done. You know, it's amazing. All the rappers, all the this, all his African-American friends, from Jesse Jackson to Al Sharpton, 
you know, have pictures with him the whole life. We say, hi, I've always been friends. He's not a racist because he has black friends. So let's take a look at that. He was good at rebranding himself and making himself appear to be kind of politically neutral and open to black friendships and trendy friendships and friendships with entertainers like Puffy and um, rappers. This is Melina Abdullah, professor of Pan-Africa Studies at California State University and a co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. Donald Trump was mostly a media personality and people, I believe, right before um, his election or in the several years before his election had forgotten about his terrible track record on race. But what is that track record? Let's go back to the 60s. The 60s was a time of hard-fought change in America. A movement fought police brutality and widespread systemic racism to try and fulfil a reverend's dream. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream In 1963, the same year Dr Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech, Maxine Brown was looking for a place to live. The 33-year-old nurse seemed like the perfect tenant. Now, this recording is a little noisy, but the real estate agent for the building, Stanley Leibowitz, recently said there was nothing about her that would stop any landlord from renting her an apartment. A black lady completed an application for an apartment in the building, a one-bedroom apartment, as I recall. And it was a very professionally writ application. It was checked and verified. There were no liens, no judgments against her. Stanley asked the owners of the building, Donald Trump, who was 17 at the time, and his father, Fred Trump, if he could approve it. One day, Mr. Trump and his son Donald came into the office, and I asked this Fred Trump what I should do with this application because she's calling me constantly. And his response to me was, you know, I don't rent to the N-word. Put the application in the desk and forget about it. He says Donald nodded. Later, Donald would write that they weren't racist, they just didn't want to rent to people on welfare. At the time, there was no law that stopped them from discriminating against black people. But in 1968, seven days after Martin Luther King was assassinated, President Lyndon Johnson signed a law to change that. It proclaims that fair housing for all is now a part of the American way of life. But Fred Trump didn't change. In 1973, the government brought a flagship case under the new Fair Housing Act, the United States of America versus Fred C. Trump, Donald Trump and Trump Management Incorporated. The government alleged that Donald Trump and his father were discriminating against thousands of black people by not allowing them to rent their apartments in Brooklyn. Donald's niece, Mary Trump, says that her grandfather's racism passed on to her uncle. I don't think that should surprise anybody given how virulently racist he is today. Have you heard, have you heard the president use the N-word? Yeah. 
and anti-Semitic slurs specifically? Yes. In 1989, Donald was no longer an apprentice to his racist father. He was a prominent public figure in a city with a bitter racial divide, and he had some strong opinions about that. A well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. Trump thought that despite what black people might think, racism was over. A black may think that they don't really have the advantage or this or that, but I've said on occasion, even about myself, if I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. That year, there was a case that highlighted the racial tensions in New York. Police believe a gang of about 12 young hoodlums is responsible for the vicious rape and beating of a 30-year-old investment banker, Trisha Miley, who was jogging in Central Park last night. Five teenage boys, four of them black and one Latino, were arrested for the crime. At the time, black people were regularly being attacked in the streets. But this is the case Trump took interest in. Trump was kind of lifting up that story of black brutality and really seizing upon the idea that the monstrous, you know, supposedly monstrous nature of black children is even worse when it's applied to a white woman. And that's the story he was trying to tell. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. And it's more than anger, it's hatred. Trump took out newspaper ads calling for the boys to be executed. Well, I am strongly in favour of the death penalty. I'm also in favour of bringing back police forces that can do something instead of just turning their back. The five boys were convicted and thrown in jail. All of them served out their sentences. Turns out, though, they didn't do it. DNA evidence and a confession revealed a serial rapist and murderer in the neighbourhood had in fact committed the crime. The boys, now men said Donald Trump was the main driver behind the wave of anger which led to their wrongful conviction. This crime happened April 19, 1989. On May 1st, Donald Trump had already taken out the ads. Uh, it was being ran in New York City's newspapers calling for the death penalty to be reinstated. We were being tried in the media and they were getting ready to lynch us in public and through the court system. Trump has never apologized. Casting certain folks, black folks especially, as boogeymen and white folks as victims is something that he's continued to do. In the following two decades, Trump focused on becoming a reality television star and temporarily stepped away from exploring white victimhood. Though in 2011, he drew attention to himself by accusing the first black president of the United States of making the entire American population the victim of a dangerous birth certificate scam. But he could have been born outside of this country. Why can't he produce a birth certificate? When he ran for president, he was still up to his old tricks. I am a victim of one of the great political smear campaigns in the history of our country. Trump delights in casting himself as the victim. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. And he wants to bring his supporters on board too. The American people are the victims of this corrupt system in every way. 
And this is your one chance right now, November 8th, to change it. This mentality aligned him with a rising political movement, the alt-right. No one will honor us for losing gracefully. No one mourns the great crimes committed against us. This is a white supremacist named Richard Spencer who coined the term alt-right. He also loves claiming to be a victim of a modern society which is trying to replace white people's role at the top of the socioeconomic food chain. America was, until this past generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation. It is our inheritance. And it belongs to us. This is a speech he gave just after Trump was elected. He claims not to be a neo-Nazi, but from what he says and does, that seems to be a semantic issue. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! He and his movement were energised by Trump's victory and began crawling out of the dark corners they had until that point been hiding in. Spencer gave TV interviews, including one on the ABC, where he got sucker-punched in the face. It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. He started holding small rallies in the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, to protest against the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. We are never going away. We will never back down to the cowardly attacks on our people and our heritage. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of a movement. This is the beginning of awakening. An awakening here in Charlottesville. The message from Spencer was, you will not replace us. We are white. We are a people. We will not be replaced. The early rallies were small. Alt-right figures were there wearing normal clothes, but they kept coming back and attracting more people. And three months later, there were a lot more of them. They were carrying torches. Some of them were wearing Ku Klux Klan hoods and waving swastikas. The most disturbing thing about this wasn't their neo-Nazi white supremacist chants, but the fact that almost all of them were not wearing masks. They were happy to be seen and identified for what they were. They had emerged from the shadows. The following day, counter-protesters clashed with them. One of the white supremacists got in his car and rammed it into the crowd of anti-racist protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer. Trump's response was a flip-flopping mess. Remember how he got up and condemned the racists and anti-racists? On many sides. On many sides. And how after a day of criticism he seemed to back down? Well, he wasn't done. Three days after the Charlottesville rally, the president was standing in the lobby of Trump Tower making some comments about infrastructure and road spending, fuming about how weak he thought he looked in his second speech. His staff had told him not to take questions. Uh, If you have any questions, uh, please feel free to ask. And all of a sudden, he was answering questions about Charlottesville for a third time. You you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. It really doesn't matter 
whether you're simply a history buff or a fan of statues. If you are marching in a group where some people are wearing clan hoods, others are doing Nazi salutes, and everyone is chanting white supremacist slogans, you are a white supremacist. The president sees it differently. I thought what took place was a horrible moment for our country, a horrible moment. He's talking about the rally. He could also have been talking about that press conference. In the wake of the rally, the organised alt-right kind of collapsed. Richard Spencer knew the violence that had caused the death of Heather Heyer had irrevocably damaged his movement. He was secretly recorded losing his mind with rage about how the rally had been received. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. Then he descended into a disgusting white supremacist rant. That audio was leaked by a former ally of his. Because as charges started being laid against the driver of the car and others at the rally, the leading figures in the alt-right movement all just started stabbing each other in the back. They lost their following, as they were all one by one banned from Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. They receded back into the shadows. In the following two years, the amount of racial violence on the streets of America was relatively low. Though in its absence, far-right terrorism became an increasingly significant problem. A man in Florida sent 13 mail bombs to people he thought of as opponents of Trump. In 2018 and 2019, right-wing extremists obsessed with Trump and the idea of whites being replaced were involved in mass shootings. One targeted Jews in Pennsylvania. Another targeted Muslims in New Zealand. The other targeted Latinos in Texas. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, said it was a growing problem. A uh, majority of the um, domestic terrorism cases that we've investigated uh, are motivated by some version of what you might call white supremacist violence, but it includes other things as well. Trump was asked if he saw white nationalism as a rising threat. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Meanwhile, demonstrations continued across the United States against police brutality. Not just on the streets, but in professional sport, where increasingly large numbers of athletes chose to kneel during the national anthem to register their protest. A lot of things that need to change. Uh, one, one specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. In America, death by police is the sixth most likely cause of death for young black men. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. Trump made it clear that when it came to protests against police brutality, he was on the side of the police. And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. In October 2019, Trump travelled to Minneapolis, Minnesota to give a rally and started talking about a local police officer he'd seen on TV. And I see a handsome young man named Bob Kroll, cops for Trump. Come up here, Bob, come up. Bob Kroll, a serving Minneapolis police officer and head of the police union, was running a Cops for Trump campaign. How can you thank this guy for everything he's done for law enforcement? Wonderful president. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Bob Kroll, during his career as a police officer, has had at least 20 complaints made against him, including lawsuits which alleged he used racial slurs while arresting people. In April 2020, he was discussing PTSD in police officers when he said he had never been affected by shooting people. There's been a big influx influx of, of PTSD, PTSD, you know, and granted it is out there, um, but I've been involved in three shootings myself and not one of them has bothered me. You know, maybe I'm different. Bob Kroll didn't know it at that point, but members of his union were days away from becoming the centre of an international protest movement. In Bob Kroll's hometown of Minneapolis, COVID-19 restrictions had led to a lot of job losses. When one restaurant was forced to close, they laid off their staff, including a bouncer named George Floyd. Floyd caught COVID-19, but recovered. He, like millions of other people in America, was struggling to find work. Then, one day, he allegedly paid for groceries with a counterfeit $20 bill. Step out and face away. Please don't shoot me, Mr. Officer, please. Don't shoot me, man. Step out and face away. Can you not shoot me, man? I'm not shooting you. Step out and face away. Okay, okay. Police pulled him over and forced him out of his car. I'm not the kind of guy. I'm not the kind of guy, man. He was terrified of what might happen to him, a black man, during the encounter with police. He started to panic. He was put on the ground on the side of the road and an officer pinned him down with a knee on his neck. George Floyd cried. He begged them to get off. He called out for his dead mother. He said he couldn't breathe. Bystanders begged the police to get off him. Bro, are you serious? Let me see a He died. There, on the road. Bob Kroll the head of the local police union and cops for Trump, sent an email to his members calling George Floyd a violent criminal. Donald Trump shared a video of right-wing commentators saying the same thing. This is a guy with a very long record and a very long uh, uh, criminal record. Is this the symbol of, of black America today? Um, The fact that he has been held up as a martyr sickens me. Uh, George Floyd was not a good person. Donald Trump retweeted that. And while both Trump and Kroll said that what happened to George Floyd was wrong... It was sickening. Um, It's something that should never occurred. It was a grave tragedy. It should never have happened. Both agreed that this was just a problem with a few bad apples and that there wasn't a systemic problem with racism in the police forces of America. The day after George Floyd's death, there was a protest. Scheduled for five o'clock tonight about this, and the mayor said that he fully supports people's right to protest, to have their voices heard. But in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as well, he urges everyone to do so in a safe manner. It started in Minneapolis, the beginning of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests that spread across America and the world. That escalated quickly. There was riots. There was looting. In his email to his members, Bob Kroll called the Black Lives Matter protesters terrorists. The president agreed with him again. What we are now seeing on the streets of our cities has nothing to do with justice or with peace. The memory of George Floyd is being dishonoured 
by rioters, looters, and anarchists. The violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa and other radical left-wing groups who are terrorizing the innocent... Bob Kroll and Donald Trump say the police do not need reform. George Floyd's death was a one-off and not indicative of a wider problem. Even though statistics show a racial bias in policing across America... But Donald Trump believes all the country's black population needs from him is criminal justice reform, which helps everybody, and a good economy, which helps everybody. A week after George Floyd's death, Trump touted a new report showing an increase in the number of jobs across America by saying this. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This approach failed. The month after George Floyd's death saw a gap in the polling between Trump and his election challenger Joe Biden widen from six points to nearly ten. And so Trump decided it was time to go harder. I will fight to protect you. I am your president of law and order. Trump started with a tweet saying, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Protests spread to the White House. The protests turned to riots. A church across the road from the White House caught fire. The president was forced to cower in a secure bunker reserved for terrorist attacks. Angered, Trump started a crackdown. What happened in this city last night was a total disgrace. As we speak... I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel. The president dispersed protesters outside the White House so he could do a photo opportunity with a Bible in front of the burned church. He promised if violence didn't decrease across the country, he would send in the troops to sort it out. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. After the military essentially told Trump they would not be doing that, he and his Attorney General Bill Barr formed a special task force. Agents from various federal departments were sent into major cities to start dealing with protesters, whether local officials liked it or not. The federal government, the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection among the federal agencies with militarized units on the streets detaining people. Trump's only solution to claims of police brutality is to increase the power of the police. And if the police aren't dealing with protesters, the solution is a specially formed anti-protest squad. And yet police have continued shooting unarmed black people, like Jacob Blake of Kenosha, Wisconsin. In August, he survived being shot seven times in the back by a police officer. I got staples in my back, staples in my damn stomach. You do not want to have to deal with this shit, man. This was three months after the death of George Floyd. Every 24 hours, it's pain. It's not but pain. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to sleep. It hurts to move from side to side. It hurts to eat. After Jacob Blake was shot, protests and riots began in Kenosha. As they rolled into their third day, a 17-year-old Trump supporter went into town with his gun. So people are getting injured, and our job is to protect this business, and part of my job is to also help people. 
if there's somebody hurt, I'm running into harm's way. That's why I have my rifle, because I need to protect myself, obviously. But I also have my med kit. This teen vigilante ended up shooting two people dead, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, before the night was out. The president refused to condemn his actions. That was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw, and uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like. And this young man is now being held up by several right-wing commentators as a hero. You've got a little boy out there trying to protect his community. Should he have been out there with a gun? No. But should he have been charged with murder? Trump visited Kenosha a week after Jacob Blake's shooting to voice his strong support of the police. He did not meet with Jacob Blake's family. Pride in America is a big part of American culture. Donald Trump knew that in 2016 when he promised that he would make America proud again. But there is an enormous group of Americans who struggle to be proud of a country which still has such a deep scar. The original sin of slavery in America left a mark that has never healed. And today, many people can't feel pride in their country unless it changes. Donald Trump refuses to see that scar. And as president, he's made a habit of picking at the scab until it bleeds. America, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Next. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Donald Trump won the presidency on a promise to stop illegal immigration. Brick by brick, that wall is going to get built. But in his effort to discourage people from coming to America, he went too far. And when you prosecute the parents for coming in illegally, which should happen... You have to take the children away. How Donald Trump shocked America and the world by overseeing the mass separation of children from their parents. Cruel and heartless. Uh, I wouldn't put it quite that way. The children will be taken care of. That's next on America If You're Listening. <laughs>